I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, the disappearance of three-year-old Casey Rose Bowen. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. The following story is based on a chapter from my book, Cold Case BC. And just a warning, this is a case about the disappearance of a small child, and it may be tough to listen to. When four-year-old Michael Dunahy vanished from a Victoria playground in the middle of the day in March 1991, it struck fear into the hearts of parents everywhere. I remember it so clearly, I've never forgotten his name. Over the last three decades, his parents have done an amazing job of keeping Michael's sweet little face in the media year after year after year, along with age progression photos raising awareness for the rare but devastating effect of stranger abduction, not just on the families, but on entire communities. Stranger abduction is rare, but it's chilling. Three-year-old Ginny May was kidnapped from a hotel room in Seashelt on Vancouver's Sunshine Coast in December 1985. She was later found murdered. Her killer was convicted the following year. That same year, Two-year-old Aaron Kaplan was snatched from his Point Grey bedroom and his body left on the lawn of his family's home. His murder is still unsolved. Harpreet Paul was just one month old when she was taken from her parents' car outside the Coquitlam Centre Mall on May 30, 1990. She is still missing. Just over nine months after baby Harpreet's parents discovered her missing, three-year-old Casey Rose Bowen disappeared from her Delta bedroom. When I first started researching Casey's disappearance, it seemed like every parent's worst nightmare. A toddler vanishing from her bed in the middle of the night seemed a rare but obvious case of stranger abduction. But as I began to dig into Casey's short life, the story quickly became much more complex. Just a month before, 28-year-old Barbara Bowen had moved to Delta from Langley with her boyfriend, Jonathan David Poyle, and her two children, Casey, and 14-month-old Stacy. The move brought them closer to Jonathan's work and studies. He was a security guard at BC Place on the weekends, and during the week, he worked for the Burnaby Parks Department. He was also studying for a degree in education at Simon Fraser University. On Friday, August 4th, 1989, Barbara and her kids went to a barbecue at a mother's house in Maple Ridge. They were celebrating the July birthdays of several family members, including Casey Rose, her cousin Dominique, who was turning six, Barbara's stepfather Fred and Barbara's mother Kathy. Barbara, who was called Bobby Joe by her family, was separated from her husband David Bowen and her relationship with Jonathan was about a year old. Around 10pm, Barbara's sister Beverly 
drove Barbara, Casey and Stacey home and dropped in to check out her sister's new house. The girls had fallen asleep in the car. Barbara took the baby, Beverly carried Casey and they put the girls to bed. Casey was already wearing her pink pyjamas. Beverly tucked her in. She was the last person to see her. Jonathan had not been at the family celebration. He told Beverly that he'd just returned from buying milk and cheese across the border. He made them a cup of tea, and because Beverly was unfamiliar with the neighbourhood, Jonathan helped to guide her back to the Alex Fraser Bridge. He got into his blue firebird, and Beverly followed him in her own car. Barbara took some Tylenol for a headache, turned on the television, sat down on the couch, and fell asleep. It's unclear how long Jonathan was out that night or what exactly transpired. All we know for certain is that something happened between the time that Beverly tucked Casey in on Friday night and nine o'clock the next morning. Jonathan told reporters that he heard Stacey crying around 9am and went in to pick her up. He noticed that Casey wasn't in her room, he said, but he could hear the television in the living room and he assumed she got up by herself and turned it on. She was often up before the adults and would dress herself and make herself something to eat. He didn't check on Casey, and instead took the baby out to the backyard. The morning that Casey disappeared was the Saturday of a BC Day long weekend. It was already hot, and there was a lot of traffic on the roads, as people headed to and from the Victoria Ferry at Tawasson Terminal. Jonathan's friend Christopher Carew and his wife Karen dropped by to see the new place and offer some advice on a fence for the backyard. Barbara invited the couple to stay for a barbecue and she and Karen went into the kitchen to see if there was enough food. Karen asked her where Casey was and Barbara told her she was still in bed. Karen asked if it was okay to go and check on her. When she went into the girls' room, Casey wasn't there. The two couples searched the house looking in crawl spaces and closets. Finding no trace of Casey, they called Delta Police. Constable Peggy Adams and her partner took the call at 12.06pm. When they arrived at the Bowen home, they immediately began to help with the search. Still finding nothing, Constable Adams called in major crimes. A command post was set up in the Bowen's dining room and the normally quiet avenue was soon lined with cars as 20 Delta police officers, four Surrey RCMP officers and 40 friends and neighbours scoured the neighbourhood, looking for signs of the little girl. In the days that followed, people came from all over the Lower Mainland to offer their support. With their help, police searched an area that covered more than six square kilometres of Delta, an area larger than Stanley Park, extending from the Petula Bridge to 80th Avenue and from River Road to Anasis Island to 128th Street. The volunteer army of searchers went door to door and police brought in bloodhounds and a chopper. Four days after Casey went missing, Staff Sergeant Phil Harden told a province reporter, We're looking at an organised or planned abduction. We are looking at the possibility of a random pickup, and we are still looking at the possibility of her wandering off into the bush. Jonathan Poole also gave an interview that day. He said that Casey had a habit of wandering off, that she loved to play hide and seek, and sometimes it had taken up to two hours to find her. 
He felt that she was hiding somewhere and too scared to come out. He ended the interview saying, At this point, we're trying not to think that some pervert or weirdo abducted her. Newspaper photographs showed a cute little girl with shoulder-length red hair. Her mother said that she was shy and she loved animals, especially her Irish setter beau. Jonathan told reporters that she was independent, inquisitive and athletic and could open car doors and gates by herself. He thought she might have seen a dog or a cat and wandered off to follow it. Pat Curtis lived next door to Barbara in Langley for several years, first when she and Donald were together, later when they'd separated, and later still when Barbara was with Jonathan Poole. Casey, she says, was often unsupervised and would wander off. Pat says she babysat Casey a few times. And you knew Barb, did you? She lived next door to us for about seven, eight years. When I first met her, she seemed really sweet. She didn't have any kids. She was a hairdresser. She was really good to my two-year-old. At the first, she was really nice. And then she started turning strange. Was that in Langley? Yes. I had Casey a few times to babysit her and reported a lot of crap that went on. They weren't the greatest of parents. The cops have come a few times when she was high on coke, and they'd take the little one away, and for some reason they always brought her back. I don't know why. She always took off. The little one was always taking off because nobody was watching her. But he'd brought her over a few times, too, and it was awful. She was so dirty, it hurt your nose. A few times I bathed her and cleaned her up, and she was such a cute kid. It did break your heart. No, it's just terrible. I'd really like to know what happened to that poor child. Pat says one night she and her husband called the police after Donald came home unexpectedly and caught Barbara with another man, then chased him out of the house. Another time, Donald came to Pat's house covered in blood after Barbara attacked him with a butcher's knife. The time she ran after Don with a butcher knife, they've had to have that on record somewhere. He came running to my house. And he said, I don't know what to do. He said, she's gone crazy. She's chasing me with a knife. And I said, where's Casey? I said, Jesus, go get your daughter. Your wife's that crazy. You don't leave your kid there. Barbara was arrested and spent a night in jail. Pat says that police never questioned her or any of the other neighbours who lived near the Bowens. After Donald and Barbara separated, Barbara stayed in the Langley Meadows house. Callie was 11 in 1989 and she lived nearby. Callie was often asked to babysit, usually on Saturday nights, when Barbara went out. Casey says Callie was extremely self-sufficient and could easily dress herself and make herself something to eat. She was such a sweet little girl. Her mom was really nice. I lived approximately half a block away from where she lived in Langley. I think I was about 11. Had you babysat her I often? I took her all the time. I had been watching her for a year. Like, her mom used to drink quite a bit, and she used to go out every Saturday night, and I would just take her. She said she'd be back by, you know, 11, 12, 1, and sometimes I'd have her for days. Casey was the type of little kid that would go to anybody. Around this time, Kelly had her own frightening experience. One night, a man in his 30s came through a bedroom window and tried to abduct her. He put his hand over her mouth, but she was able to scream and bite him, and he took off. Her father gave chase, but was unable to catch him. Langley RCMP told her that it was probably just one of her brother's friends 
who had snuck into the wrong room. At 11, Callie said she knew the difference between a teenager and a grown man. When Callie's father heard that Casey had gone missing, possibly in the same way, he called Delta Police. They told him that the two events were completely unrelated, that predators would only take children of similar ages. And while that may be true, Callie says that she's always wondered if there was a connection, that perhaps she was targeted because Casey needed a caregiver or someone that she knew. I am surprised that nobody really talked to me about it before. I had a police report about two months before she went missing through her window. A man, say about 30, 35, um, with a great big beard and dark hair, came and tried to take me out through my window. So when she went missing, I said it was probably the same guy. And when I had talked to police at the time, they said it was probably nothing to do with each other as they only took kids around the same age. They basically shrugged me off and said, like, you're just imagining things. This never happened. And then it was about 10 years later, somebody had contacted me on the same thing saying, it is possible it was the same guy. Do you remember what he looked like? And I said, I could probably remember exactly what he looks like even to this day. When a child goes missing, it's usually a parent abduction, another family member, or a close friend who's responsible. Casey's father, Donald Bowen, still angry about losing his daughter in the separation, was an obvious target of speculation. Multiple polygraph lie detector tests were given to Jonathan Poole, Barbara's sister Beverly, Donald and his parents. Because Barbara was pregnant, she couldn't be given the test at the time of Casey's disappearance. Donald, who was in rehab in Saskatchewan at the time that Casey went missing, told a reporter that he and his wife had separated about a year before and had not seen his daughter for two months. He told a reporter that he was frustrated and angry and he was coming to Vancouver to look for Casey. Although it's unclear if that ever happened, he also told a reporter that he was angry at Barbara for letting Casey out of her sight long enough for her to disappear. Police announced that Donald was no longer a suspect in his daughter's disappearance. They refused to comment on Jonathan's polygraph results, but Beverly, who was also tested twice, told me that she passed both polygraphs and police told her that Jonathan did not and then told police that if they wanted to talk to him again, they would have to do so through his lawyer. Beverly acknowledges that her sister Barbara was certainly troubled, but she says that she would never hurt her children. She also told me that she found Jonathan controlling and domineering towards Barbara. He told Barbara what to do and what to say, she says. The Monumental Scandals Tour by Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours digs into the dirty foundations of the city's most iconic heritage buildings. There's a sensational murder behind the old Vancouver courthouse, backroom deals at the Hotel Vancouver, salacious dances at the old Orpheum Theatre and the chief of police who liked his gambling bribes delivered in paper bags. This walking tour includes a private look inside the Marine Building, an Art Deco masterpiece built by a rum runner during American Prohibition. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% off your booking by using the code COLDCASE. The search for Casey went worldwide, 
and more than 40,000 posters were distributed all over North America. By the middle of August, three psychics had joined the investigation, along with seven Delta police investigators working on close to 400 tips of supposed sightings of Casey. Later in the month, well-known children's singer Charlotte Diamond recorded a song called Casey Rose, with proceeds going to the Victims of Violence Canadian Centre for Missing Children. I contacted Charlotte Diamond to try and get a copy of the song, or at least the lyrics, but she told me that a lot of the cassettes were thrown out when she moved outside of Metro Vancouver in 2017. And unfortunately, she also hadn't kept a copy of the lyrics. Casey's missing persons case went cold for more than four years until Staff Sergeant L. Hammersmark found a lead. It was an old tip received in September 1989, the month after Casey went missing. A woman had phoned from Kamloops to say that she'd seen a small girl in a local playground arguing with a couple. The woman called her Christy and the child, she said, insisted her name was Casey and that she wanted to phone her real mother. Somehow the tip had slipped through the cracks. When police finally got back to the woman in the spring of 1993, she told them that she'd seen the same little girl several times that September. When she questioned the couple, the man told her that he was Casey's father and had recently remarried and his daughter wasn't getting on with her stepmother. It's hard to know how much weight to put on this tip after so much time had gone by, but files showed that in September of 89, and again in April 1993, police had received reports of sightings in Kelowna. Posters showing a computer-enhanced image of Casey at age seven were put in all the schools in Kamloops and Kelowna where her father and grandparents lived. Even though police said that Barbara, Donald and Donald's parents were not suspects in Casey's disappearance, rumours continued to circulate that Barbara, or more likely Jonathan, had done something to Casey. None of this was helped by Barbara, who told several different versions of events over the years. She initially told reporters that she'd last seen her oldest daughter at 6am on the morning that she disappeared. The following year, Barbara told a reporter that she'd last seen Casey when she put her to bed at around 11pm on the Friday night, immediately after they arrived home from her mother's house in Maple Ridge. Then, in July 1990, Barbara told Vancouver Sun reporter Neil Hall that she believed that someone came in through the unlocked front door and took Casey while she slept. Over the years, more troubling statements emerged. In 1991, Barbara told Rhonda Morgan, executive director of the Missing Children's Society of Canada, who was working with Delta Police, that she had seen three masked intruders enter her home the night that Casey disappeared. Barbara told her that she was awoken by the sound of the front door scraping over the vinyl mat and saw three men wearing Halloween masks. Then everything went blank. In relating the story to Morgan on another occasion, she added that after Jonathan left to show Beverly the way home, she was changing in her bedroom when she felt a hand over her face. She smelled something, she said, and later woke up on the couch. When Jonathan came home, he told her that the door was open, yet neither adult apparently thought to check the children or to mention this to police on the day that Casey disappeared. Barbara told Beverly that the last thing she remembered that night was somebody coming into the house and putting something over her mouth. 
Beverly believes that Barbara thought that to be the true version of events. It's also quite possible that Barbara didn't remember anything of that night, and as a police officer suggested to me, made up the story about getting up to change Stacy's diaper and covering Casey with a blanket early that morning to make her seem like a better mother. Barbara may have never left her bed. Shona, Barbara's third daughter and Jonathan's first, was born in 1989. Barbara volunteered with victims of violence and attended Alcoholics Anonymous. Barbara and Donald never divorced, and in 1995, Jonathan Poole took a job teaching English at a college near Seoul in South Korea. Beverly says she doesn't know why Barbara and the girls didn't go with him, but the relationship continued long distance, and once a year or so he would come home and stay with them in Vancouver. Barbara told friends that they were saving money for a down payment on a house so they could get their family back on track, but it doesn't look like Jonathan had any intention of returning to Vancouver to live. Instead, he would tell Barbara, it's just six more months. In 2000, Stacey, 12, and Shona, 11, were apprehended by social workers. Former Delta Police Sergeant Mike Leary says it wasn't the first time the ministry was involved with a family. He says that Stacey, whose father is unknown, had a lot of behavioural problems. Stacey landed in foster care and went to live with rock star Tim Backman and his family in Abbotsford. She ran away when she was 14 and in 2009, told police that Backman had been sexually assaulting her. The case went to court, but in the end, the judge held Stacey's traumatised childhood against her and the former Backman-Turner Overdrive band member, by then a 59-year-old real estate agent, got off. The following year, Backman was charged with sexual assault by another underage girl in his care, but again got off when the Crown decided not to proceed with the charges. Shona went to live with her father in South Korea. A few years ago, I was lucky to inherit some beautiful pieces of antique jewellery from my grandmother. But the gold is old and thin, and the rings are out of style. Erin Haken, a Vancouver jewellery designer and goldsmith, has convinced me to take them out of the safety deposit box. Erin will work with me at her Vancouver studio to create a one-off design that I'll be proud to wear every day, and that will honour my nana. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. In 2001, Barbara was living in Port Coquitlam and working at a donut shop. On Saturday, April 28, 2001, she finished her shift and dropped in at a local pub to play pool. Then she walked to the Petula Bridge climbed over the rail and jumped off. Her body was found the next day. Barbara did not leave a note. Beverly says that after losing her daughters, Barbara stayed straight and came to live with her in Kamloops for several months. She was starting to reconnect with friends and family and to get her life back on track. Barbara, she told me, was a strong, loving, caring person who lived for her family. Jonathan and Shona come back from Seoul for Barbara's funeral that May and Jonathan was questioned again by police about Casey's disappearance. But there was no evidence to support a charge and he and Shona returned to South Korea. Sergeant Mike Leary inherited Casey's file shortly before Barbara's suicide. 
and her death then kicked new life into the police investigation into Casey's disappearance. The family gave Leary permission to search through two storage lockers full of Barbara's things. When she died, we got a search warrant. She had uh, like two storage lockers full of stuff. So we searched through them thoroughly and uh, like looked at every little thing. But still couldn't find anything. Barbara wrote a lot of little things like, oh, she had little books like, where's my Casey? And I miss you so much. And like, but we couldn't find anything that really put her, like doing anything to Casey. When Leary was transferred to emergency planning, he took the files with him, all ten bins full, and he kept investigating right up until his retirement in 2009. Casey's disappearance is something that stays with him either now, he says. His own daughter is the same age that Casey would be. Yeah, I worked on that case for mm, at least ten years anyway. I I think about it all the time. So I know there's a few theories, but, but what's yours? Yeah, there's been numerous theories as to what happened to Casey. Was she abducted? Uh, did the parents do something to her? Did she wander off? Was she sold to pay off uh, drug debt? Did other family members take her um, because they're concerned for her welfare? Just the thing that rings my bell is, you know, why did John go to Korea? And why isn't he coming back? Canada doesn't have an extradition agreement with South Korea. At that time, anyway. I don't know if we do now. Yeah, good place to hide. Inspector Guy Leeson of the Delta Police says Casey's file is considered active, as are all missing persons' files, until the person is located or their remains are found. Leeson started working on the investigation in 1995. He's chased down tips, checked the DNA of women who thought they were Casey, and conducted a file review. It's an interesting file, and it's uh, one that we've had a lot of public interest in over the years. Has any trace of Casey ever been found? No, no, not at all. What was the, the last development on a file? The last development turned out to be nothing, but this is one file. We do continue to get tips on, on this file. In the time I was in major crime, we probably had about three people claim to be Casey. You know, you get uh, reports of sightings. The sightings you investigate the best you can, like a lot of them maybe people who they think resembles like the uh, they release the age progression photos so I mean everything gets investigated with the people who claim to be Casey will actually send somebody out to talk to them interview them also obtain a a sample of their DNA and do the comparisons so we've had to do that on on several occasions and obviously comes back to not be Casey but usually other things are at play uh, with those tips and the uh, police have gone out to the media saying that Jonathan Poole was considered a suspect. I don't know if the police ever released that. I oh, know okay. some of our ex-former uh, uh, investigators or former police members may have said that. I don't think we would comment on whether somebody is a suspect or a person of interest. I mean, I, I am familiar with who Mr. Poyle is. Yeah, he would have been interviewed as well as everybody else that was close to that. I think in his case probably several times. And you're not able to tell me if he was ruled out or not? I would say he has not been ruled out. And he's still in Korea, is he? As far as I know, I think he would be still in Korea, yeah. I'm kind of curious why the police didn't go there to interview him. I guess he didn't have enough to charge him. Yeah, there's insufficient evidence to charge anybody right. on this file. Now, okay. Like I said, I can't get into specifics okay. of Mr. Fair Poyle enough. or anybody else. Yeah, I'd, you know, I'd love uh, an opportunity to speak to Mr. Poyle again about the file if he was willing to speak to us. 
Have you ever heard of any similar case, like children, young children that have been abducted and have actually turned up years later? There's been a few cases in the States. Oh, okay. They're usually older. Like, I think there was one a few years back. Like I said, you never rule it out. It, like, you know, I wouldn't want to write anybody off and, you know, 100% say we believe they're deceased because mm. you never know. Casey's DNA has been submitted to genealogical databanks in hopes that she's alive and will one day send her DNA to a genealogy site such as Ancestry.com or 23andMe. Genetic genealogy is a 21st century crime-fighting tool that has proven to be a game-changer for law enforcement investigating cold cases. It involves searching through public DNA databanks for familial DNA, or in other words, looking for relatives, a second cousin or an uncle, for instance, who shared DNA with a missing person. A genetic genealogist will then search through all the DNA profiles stored on sites like 23andMe for people who share DNA with or who are related to the missing person. Over the years, police have worked through several theories that Casey wandered off, that she was kidnapped by a stranger, that she was sold to pay off a drug debt, that she was killed by someone close to her either accidentally or intentionally, or that a family member took her because they were concerned for her welfare. Inspector Leeson says the least likely theory is that Casey wandered off. He believes that if this was the case, some trace of her would have been found. While they can't rule out the theory that she was taken by a stranger, it's also unlikely, he says. The family home was located on a quiet street, and there was a narrow time frame when she went missing. While everyone hopes that she is still alive, the most likely scenario, says Leeson, is that she met with foul play caused by someone close to her. Inspector Leeson believes that Casey's mystery could be solved if someone who has knowledge of the circumstances behind her disappearance will come forward. Even though more than 30 years has passed, Beverly still gets emotional when she talks about her niece. Tell me, what was she like? <laughs> A little spunk. <laughs> I called her Mouse. That was my nickname for her. She was quiet as a mouse, but she had the spunk. And she seemed pretty capable. She was very capable, and when she had her mind set on something, it was, Auntie, I can do it. And always always a smile and hugs for anybody. So you were basically the last person to see Casey? Yes, I was. I put her to bed. Okay. And I still remember those little pink pajamas and the little redhead and... So basically, I was the last person that saw her. What would you like to see in this? Is there anything that you'd like me to get out for you, for the family? My only thing is, like, if she is out there somewhere and if she's had a happy life, I don't want to cause her any grief. It's just the not knowing. And and then every year on August the 5th, I take my time off work because I can't deal with it. That is my hope that she is out there somewhere and eventually I do find her. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eve Lazarus and this is Cold Case Canada. The episode about the disappearance of three-year-old Casey Rose Bowen is based on a chapter from my book, Cold Case Canada. If you have any information on Casey Rose Bowen's disappearance on August 5th, 1989 from Delta, B.C., please contact Delta Police at 
9464411 or if you wish to remain anonymous, contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. You can also go online to solvecrime.ca. If you'd like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. Visit evelazarus.com and buy Eve a coffee if you're enjoying Cold Case Canada. I'm Eve Lazarus and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher. Podcatcher.